you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, church. My name is Elle. Um, I serve as one of the City Kids leaders at City on a Hill. During the week, I'm a physiotherapist at a rehab facility, um, and this morning I'll be reading the Bible for you. So grab your Bibles. We'll be reading from Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Thank you, Al, for reading that passage for us. Well, friends, today we have a standalone message as we're in between sermon series. We're going to hear more this morning about our next sermon series that kicks off next week. But I thought uh, that today we could focus on one of the guiding principles or distinctives about how we do ministry and express our faith here at City on a Hill called gospel confidence. And I've prepared this because I've, I've noticed that as I read through the scriptures and particularly the New Testament and particularly books like the book of Acts, as I compare myself to some of the early disciples, I notice how far short I fall of their boldness, of their courage, of their confidence in God and in the gospel. And particularly in the book of Acts, as I've read through that in uh, recent years, there's been some examples of where boldness and confidence are expressed. We also see a bit of a, a, a giveaway for where that confidence comes from. There's a story in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John are in the kind of heartbeat of uh, the the religious powerhouse of the day in Jerusalem. And they are preaching about Jesus because he's just risen from the dead and they're excited and they can't keep it to themselves. And then they get arrested and they get whipped and they get told to not ever again preach of this Jesus. And they say to them, hey, we can't help but speak of what we have seen having seen the risen Lord. And so after being released, they go back to their friends, the other disciples, and they have a prayer meeting together. And what's interesting is that they don't pray for new laws or new legislation. They don't pray for new leaders or new government that wouldn't oppress them. They don't pray for some kind of new innovation and creativity and new methods to try to get the gospel out there in more palatable or safer, culturally acceptable ways. What they do pray for is boldness. They pray for confidence in God. And the prayer that they do pray is very interesting because uh, it talks about how everything that has happened in the days preceding it, even to to Jesus' death and then resurrection, they say that sovereign Lord, truly everyone in this city has been kind of against your servant. It says this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And then they finished their prayer saying, so give us boldness. And so they knew that what they had just seen happen and even what was happening to them was according to God's plan. 
And then in Acts, as you flip over a couple of pages and get to uh, the martyrdom of Stephen, Stephen, the first one who would lose his life for the sake of the gospel, he is being uh, shouted at by a, a crowd of Pharisees and religious elites, and they pick up stones to throw at him. And he preaches while they're about to throw these stones at him. And his sermon is instructive for us because his sermon goes through the whole plan of God, through the Old Testament of how God has revealed himself to Israel and yet their hard-heartedness and their self-centeredness has blinded them from responding to God. And so what gave him courage in that moment, in his final breaths, was knowing the plan of God, that when he was threatened and he was about to be sown, what did he bring to mind? the plan of God throughout history. And then we could flick some more pages onwards in Acts. And near the end of Acts, Paul is going through a series of trials because he keeps appealing to a higher authority. And he comes before King Agrippa. And Agrippa asks him to convince me to be a Christian. Tell me about what's going on in your life here, Paul. And he says this to the king. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And so I notice that whether it's being persecuted by religious elites and arrested for preaching the gospel, whether it's about to be stoned and killed for your faith in Jesus, whether it's standing before the king, what creates this kind of gospel confidence is knowing God's plan. Knowing that the moment you find yourself in, that the life you are living, that the circumstances that have arisen around you, that they are all just a short little Insta story in the midst of the wider epic movie that God is directing throughout human history. I remember a story that uh, a midwife told me and my wife when we were uh, preparing or, or getting used to the reality of having our little firstborn boy, Axel, who's now five, uh, with us in those first days of his life. Uh, the midwife came over and it is a very awkward time those first few days because it is the time where you as parents, particularly the mum, is, is most worn out and yet the time where everybody else outside of the immediate family wants to come and visit and lavish the baby and the new parents with, with gifts and praises and cuddles. And so the midwife was helping us kind of get used to manage this, this awkward kind of season that you are in. And she told us a story. And the story was that there was a, a couple that she was uh, looking after that had a particularly traumatic pregnancy, a difficult birth, so much so that the mum was completely wiped out. And so after having given birth, they were able to bring the baby home. But just 20 minutes after arriving home, they had their first knock at the door. And there they were, some, some friends of the family with presents and a smile and keen for some cuddles with the new baby. And so as the visitors are coming in, uh, the mum needed to go into the second bedroom, the kids' uh, new room, the nursery. And so the dad followed her in there and she was worn out. So she said, said to her husband, you know, honey, I am just so tired. You know, it has been an epic couple of days it is, it's nice that these people have come, but can you kind of just handle this, honey? Can you, can you please just kind of maybe perhaps ask them to come back another time? And so they 
kind of console themselves and all right, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And so they head out of the nursery and back into the living room where their guests are there for them. And as soon as they walk back into the living room and, and see their guests, their guests go, okay, well, that, that's that for us. We're, we're, we're going to head out now. Uh, we're going to leave. And so the new parents think to themselves, oh, well, that's kind of what we wanted. But gee, that was, that was pretty abrupt. We weren't really expecting them to leave like that. And it turns out that while the mum was telling the dad about how tired she was and she wanted this couple to leave, the baby monitor was on. And that the message had gotten through to the visitors through the baby monitor, accidentally through the baby monitor. And I think like that couple, when it comes to the gospel, so many of us as Christians and even so many of us, of us together as churches, we can go through our lives with a very quiet, awkward kind of faith. A faith that we only talk about between loved ones, the, the immediate family. And we, we hope that perhaps, maybe, there might be a baby monitor on somewhere in our lives that other people might accidentally pick up that we're Christians. And then they might approach us about it or they might take the first step in asking us about our faith. I've noticed even within myself that sometimes for me, you know, in order to, to be confident in, in public about my faith, I, I kind of need to be in the right headspace. Sometimes I need to be G'd up about Jesus to be, really be exercising my faith and seeking to reach out to others and be bold and confident in talking about Jesus. Sometimes I, I need to be in the right frame of mind to even be able to interpret the circumstances I'm in, in light of all that I know in the Bible and in the Scriptures. Well, we don't want a, a baby monitor kind of confidence that accidentally communicates what we think about Jesus. And nor do we want a self-confidence that rises and falls on how we're feeling or how our circumstances are or how we are morally performing and whether we think God approves of us before we share our faith. No, we want a gospel confidence, a confidence that comes whatever's going around us, whatever's going on in us, we know that we find ourselves in the midst of God's plan. We find ourselves in, under God's sovereignty in His hands. Knowledge of God's plan leads to confidence in God's power and confidence in God's power in the gospel leads to confidence for the gospel. And so we are going to look at God's plan today. We're going to look at the one single overarching plan of God across the Bible. And that's why our Bible reading was in Genesis 12. Turn with me to Genesis 12 because we are going to find a confidence in this uh, the beginning of this plan that is going to equip us in our lives that might perhaps change how we scroll through our social media feeds, that might change how we approach our manager at work, that might change how we approach our relationships or romantic life, that how we think about our next big life transitions, how we handle perhaps a, a bad prognosis from a doctor or living through a global pandemic or perhaps even one day being put in jail for the faith. Where can we get the kind of confidence that's going to hold us in that time where we get it from looking at God's plan revealed to us in the Scriptures. So we're not going to go through every page of the 1,100 pages of the Scriptures. We're going to go to the beginning of the plan here in Genesis 12. Uh, and we're going to look at a couple of passages related to the plan of salvation beginning when God called Abraham and then we'll reflect on some other passages that shed light on it. And so Genesis is about the beginning. 
God creates the world and everything in it and it is all good. And then he creates Adam and Eve and it is now very good. And yet we know from the beginning that Adam and Eve attempted to disobey God, to become like God. And so they actually reject him and go their own way. And a couple of chapters into human history, into the Bible, we actually see that that spirit, that that heart that has turned against God now infects every person. That everybody always and in every time is doing things against God. And so God starts again. A flood comes and, and fills the earth, but he saves a family, the family of Noah. And then with the family of Noah, he calls them and gives them a similar commission to Adam and Eve. He says, hey, multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it. And yet only a couple of chapters after the family of Noah, again, every single heart is rejecting, rebelling and wanting to be like God, building the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And then comes Genesis 12. What is God going to do this time? How is he going to help remove this heart that is constantly rejecting God from all of humanity? What is he going to do to save the world? He decides to start a family. And so he calls Abram. And this plan with Abram unfolds in uh, three particular instances in Genesis 12. We have the calling in Genesis 15. We have the covenant in Genesis 17. There is the consecration. But let's turn first just to Genesis 12. We're seemingly out of nowhere. God calls this pagan man named Abram. Abram isn't, as far as we know, someone who fears God himself. He's not someone who is honoring the God of the Bible, the God who is there. He's out there minding his own business, building his own household with servants and workers. And God appears to him or speaks to him. And it says in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God is going to bless the entire world through this one family, the family of Abram. And so he sends him to what later becomes the promised land. The problem with this plan is though, Abram doesn't have a family. Abram doesn't have any children. In fact, his wife is barren. In fact, both of them are pensioners. And so they can't possibly have a family. And so in Genesis 15, Abram reminds God of this reality, saying, God, I I don't actually have a kid. You you say that through my family, we're going to bless every other family. I don't have a family. I cannot have a family. In fact, the the inheritor, the, the, the one who is the heir to my inheritance is a servant and not my son. And so Abram reminds God of this and God says to him, no, your very own son shall be your heir. And then God brings Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then he believed the Lord. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so Abram and Sarah settled in the land, longing and yearning for children. They have none. They can't have any. And God says, look to the stars. That's how many kids you're going to have. That's how many descendants you are going to have. And so it doesn't look 
likely, and yet God promises that it'll happen. This promise is utterly ridiculous. And yet, the promises continue. Because in Genesis 17, God marks Abram and his future family out as his special people. That he is going to be uh, the, the father of nations, the father of kings, of God's covenant people. And then by Genesis 21, sure enough, as always seems to happen, God's word comes true. Abram and Sarah have a son, Isaac. And then we know as the generations go on, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob through him has has 12 sons, the nation of Israel, as we've seen recently in Exodus. And so God would carry forward this plan of making a family through his people, through the entire Old Testament. And so I want to talk now about four things in light of this beginning of God's plan of redemption that we discover in the rest of the Bible that I hope will be foundational for us and our confidence in God and his plan for us. Let's first talk about the center of God's plan. Now, we've got a praise point today. This Sunday is the last Sunday of winter. And everybody put emojis in the chat celebrating that winter will be over. I don't know about you, but winter, two hours allowed outside of exercise during lockdown, it is disgusting. And yet spring is coming. Spring is coming. And the flowers are going to know it because it's baked into creation. Our psychology is going to know it because it's baked into humanity. It is resurrection time. And on that very first spiritual spring Sunday, resurrection Sunday, Jesus walked out of the tomb and he did what we do when we have our two hours of exercise time. He rose out of that tomb and he went for a further walk. He walked 10 kilometers all the way to a town called Emmaus. And on that road to Emmaus, he was walking with two uh, disciples, two people who had trusted and believed in him, but they couldn't see that they were walking now with Jesus. In fact, they were still disappointed about everything that had happened just 48 hours earlier when they'd seen Jesus hanging on the cross. They couldn't believe that their hope had been shattered, that they were disappointed. And so they're walking to Emmaus, grieving this promise that wasn't fulfilled. And they tell Jesus about their disappointment. And then Jesus finally cracks it at them. And Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's very interesting that that Jesus would unpack the Bible that they had. Jesus would unpack the Old Testament that they had, that Jesus would unpack the plan of God to these disciples to show them that actually everything that they've seen come to pass was meant to happen. That actually this whole plan was about Jesus. This whole plan centered in on him. That from Genesis through to Malachi, and then again in the New through to Revelation, Jesus is at the center of the plan. And during his life, Jesus would get even more explicit about this. There's one point where he has an argument with uh, the religious elites, the the Pharisees. And of course, they're feeling disrespected by Jesus because he's not treating them with the, the authority that they seem to have. And they say to Jesus, man, how can you speak to us like this? We are sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. 
And so Jesus says to them, hey, you guys think that you are Abraham's children. Mate, Abraham believed in me. Abraham looked forward to me. And so Jesus is saying that thousands of years before, when we go back to Genesis 12, those promises that that came to Abraham, well, actually, when Abraham trusted God for those promises, it was a trust in Jesus. When he looked forward to God's promises being fulfilled without even knowing the details, obviously, that it would be fulfilled in a, a Jesus of Nazareth. No, he knew that God would be true to his promises. It's a trust that God would be faithful, that God would be right. And so Jesus is at the center of this plan that begins with the calling of Abraham. And that leads us to consider number two, the unity of God's plan. Now, you might not know this, but in the middle of the 19th century here where we are in Melbourne, Melbourne was the most prosperous city in all of the world. That's because we're at the height of a gold rush in Victoria. And we reap the benefits of all the people coming in, descending upon our city and our state in hopes of finding gold. And it is now an initiation of every uh, kid who goes through primary school in Victoria to have a camp or an excursion to Ballarat to go to Sovereign Hill to try to pan for gold. And you get a little speck perhaps and you think that you're going to be rich and then you lose it some point in the next coming years after that because you forget about it. But there is a famous saying that whenever uh, someone was panning for gold and they found it, they would jump up and shout, Eureka! Eureka! I've found it. Well, in my own understanding of the gospel, my own understanding of the Bible, coming to see the unity of what God was doing with Abraham, what God was doing in the old, and what He is doing today with you and with me was somewhat of a Eureka moment. You see, what we've just read as God promising to Abraham that He would be the father of a great nation, we read that after He promised that, Abraham believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. And what's amazing is that the New Testament tells us that the trust Abraham had in God in that moment, even thousands of years ago, on his own, in the desert, is actually the same trust that you and I are called to put in the promises of God to us today, to those promises fulfilled for us in Jesus. This is at the heart of the book of Romans. Paul tries to make clear to the Jews and to you and me that, hey, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by this this resume that we can compile. We're not saved by this body of work that we can come before God and ask Him to bless. No, we're saved by faith, by faith in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. And when we have that faith, it's counted to us as righteousness, that our, our sin is exchanged for God's perfection and His righteousness. He says in Romans 4, No unbelief, talking about Abraham, made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so it's not as if God's plan originally was for the Old Testament people, the Jewish people, to be made right with God by working really hard. But then it didn't really work and they could never really work hard enough. And so God had to go to plan B. And so he sent Jesus. 
Now, that's not how the plan was planned at all. There's been a unity in God's plan all along, that Abraham was made right with God by grace through faith. In Exodus, Moses is made right with God by grace through faith. Later, King David is made right with God by grace through faith. After Jesus, before Jesus, every single person who has ever been in a relationship with the living God, the God of the Bible, through Jesus, has been made right with that God by grace through faith in His Son, Jesus. Now, certainly before Jesus, people didn't know the details. They didn't know exactly the shape and the specifics of how God would fulfill His promises, but they trusted in the God of the promises all the same. They look forward while we look back. And so we can be confident in the gospel when we see that it wasn't a plan B, that God doesn't shift and move and make edits based on our underperformance. No, this has been the plan all along, as we read about in the beginning of our service, so that no one would boast, but that he might give the gift of God to us so that we would believe in him. He has always called people to trust in His promises. And so that leads us to start talking about the scope of God's plan. Picture it with me, Genesis 15. Abraham there is sitting in his tent. It's just him. It's his wife, Sarah. He's probably got other servants and members of his household in in other nearby tents. And God ordained that night that there would not be a single cloud in the sky so that every single star that he could, had made that would be visible would be on show. So that he could call Abraham out of his tent and Abraham with the most clarity possible could see the reality of God's promises. God says, you, Abraham, you, old, married to a barren woman, weary, confused as you are, you're going to give birth to this. Millions and millions and millions of stars. And think about it. You and I live at a time where we've been blessed to see this reality come to existence, to be fulfilled. Because we know that Abraham does have a child, Isaac, and Isaac does have uh, children, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has children himself, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Israel goes from uh, a family to a tribe to a clan to a nation. And inside that nation, the people of faith are a remnant held together in the midst of idolatry and syncretism and compromise. And then Jesus arrives. And the gospel is released from being housed within a national boundary to all people, every tribe every tongue, every people and nation to him. And Jesus takes the the 12 disciples and he converts them into 70. And Jesus sends out the 70. And then by the time they're all gathered in the upper room after the death of Jesus, there's 120. And then that day is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 repent and believe and trust in Jesus. And on and on and on it has gone to the point where today, Some two and a half billion people claim to put their trust in Jesus. That's a whole lot of stars. When when we trust in God, we enter into the family of Abraham. We become his children. And if you are trusting in Jesus right now, you are in the family of Abraham. You, today, 
was symbolized thousands of years ago by a star, a star in the sky that God pointed Abraham's vision and hope and faith toward. So shall your offspring be. Jesus himself said of the kingdom of heaven that it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man had took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And we've seen this play out and it will continue to play out. The book of Revelation says that a a large multitude are there before the throne. And this plays out in a universal sense, but we've also seen it play out in different uh, mission fields. We could think of uh, the nation of Iran. Do you know, in 1979, there were 500 Christians in Iran. Today, there are 1 million. In Africa, there were 9 million Christians at the beginning of the 20th century. Today, there are 541 million Christians. And so God is continuing to gather people into the family of Abraham at a faster rate than the growth of the population. And so don't just look around your workplace or don't just look around your neighborhood or don't just base it off what you see on the news or what you read in media or what you see on the socials. That's not what the world is like. God is up to something right now. God is at work right now. God is drawing people to himself. And so you can take confidence in the scope of God's plan. God has got this. God said he would do it. God is doing it in our generation, in our time and place. Using you, using me, using us when we gather together as a community. And so take confidence from the scope of God's plan. Finally, let's talk about the power of God's plan. Given we've just finished the book of Exodus, we know full well how checkered the story of God's people is. Two generations after Abraham, his family is out of this land that God originally called him to and living in Egypt because of a famine. Years later, we know that they're enslaved in Egypt and God rescues them out from under the hand of Pharaoh and sets them free. Then they're in the wilderness and they're complaining about this and that. And finally, they come home to the promised land. And then even in the promised land, they're, they're scared of the enemies who uh, dwell in the land. Then finally, when they defeat the enemies, now they're in the land. God's promises are coming to pass. And yet they forget about God. They forget about the promises. And Judges tells us that they start to do whatever is right in their own eyes. And they do this for so long and so intensely that hundreds of years later, they are captured by other nations and exiled from the promised land. In the New Testament, we see even in the life of Jesus that he, he, he bears somewhat of the oppression, that he, he is a victim to the schemes of the devil and the pride of those in authority. In Acts, as we've read, we, we read about disciples being mistreated and arrested and martyred because of the hard-heartedness of the people. We have multiple books in the New Testament written just to help us, to prepare us for suffering, for how hard life is going to be as a Christian. And yet in all of this difficulty, in self-inflicted difficulty through our sin and our selfishness, through external opposition pushed back against us, through persecution, through pain, through pandemic, God's plan continues. God's plan 
continues. Paul says in Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, for nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing stops the plan of God. Nothing gets in the way of the purposes of God. Nothing can thwart the power of God. And so if you are a Christian today, this is exactly why you are a Christian today. Because your sin didn't stop God showing you grace. Your stubbornness didn't stop God's plan for your life that he would call you into his family to be one of his own. Your self-centeredness didn't make him go to a plan B or, or edit the plan. No, nothing can separate you from God and from the grace that he has shown you in Jesus. And so God's plan is centered on Jesus. God's plan started from thousands of years ago and has been consistent all the way through down to today and forever. God's plan has gone from one promise to a young barren couple to include billions and billions of people today. And God's plan is going to get through no matter what comes against it. And so do you get the sense that you can have some kind of confidence now? Confidence not in your circumstances that everything's going well, Confidence not in yourself that you're going to feel up and about. Not in your plans, not in your competency, but confident in God and the unstoppability of His victory, of His grace and of His plan unfolding. And you can start to see why the early Christians were so emboldened, why they were so brave, why they were so courageous and confident because they had confidence that the good news of Jesus was what God had been planning all along. Confidence that they were living in a time where this was all coming to fruition around them and confident that they found themselves in that plan, that it was for everyone, that no power, no king, no government, no opposition could stop it. You know, the same is true for you and for me. You can have confidence for the gospel when you have confidence in the gospel. And so let this knowledge of God's plan free you to step in to what God has for you. Your life is less about you than it feels like, less about you than others tell you it is, less about you than you are currently being discipled to think about your life. Now, your life is about Jesus. Your life is about stepping in to God's plan for the world to make much of Jesus, to gather others into faith in Jesus. The most important thing in your life is that you would trust in Jesus and that you would keep on trusting in Jesus. The biggest goal you should have in your life is how you can contribute to the ever-expanding scope of the gospel in the world. And so within that goal, no need to, to fret about this job or that job. No need to fret about living in that neighborhood or this neighborhood, about what university degree to try after high school, about whether you should have two kids or three kids or any kids, whether you should get, get married at all, whether you should stay single. God's got this. God's got you. Enjoy 
and rest in the freedom that God gives you in the midst of living a life of faith in Jesus. Let the knowledge of God's plan hold you when it feels like things are coming against it, when you meet difficulty. Because knowing God's plan helps us judge not Jesus by our circumstances, but rather judge our circumstances by Jesus. He's unchanging. He's in control. He is the sovereign Lord. He is all-knowing, all-loving, and gentle and lowly. And so let's put our trust in Jesus afresh today, having seen the mighty power of God displayed in His plan being expressed in our world through generation after generation. Meet your future with confidence because God has got you whatever your future includes. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Sovereign Lord, we praise you that you are the the mighty director of human history, the one who stepped in by uh, speaking to Abraham in Genesis 12, calling him out of his tent to look up at all that you would do in making a family, a family of faith. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have shown your faithfulness and by sending Jesus confirmed your character, that you have been true to your promises every single step of the way. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, that the plan centers on him, that the promises are fulfilled in him, that our lives make sense in light of him, and that our plans and our goals for the rest of our lives should be for him. Lord, make that true of us. Make our our lives Speak a big Jesus. Sing a big Jesus. Tell about the story of Jesus. Help us have this gospel confidence that knows and trusts in you because we've seen your faithfulness throughout all time. Lord, you're going to be faithful tomorrow. You're going to be faithful next week. You're going to be faithful next year. You're going to be faithful, come what may, in the future. And so come and continue to express your plan. Gather men and women, boys and girls into your family by giving them faith. Help us be vessels in your hand, in your plan that might be able to speak of this Jesus, stand fast with this Jesus, be courageous and confident for this Jesus. Fill us with gospel confidence, we pray. We repent of our small-mindedness. We repent of our cowardice. We repent of our lack of faith. Lord, help our unbelief. We lift our lives afresh to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.